He was a young geologist in Arizona pursuing his passion. Then one day, everything changed. He vanished without a trace, sending his family into a frantic search to find where he had gone. They faced roadblocks with rough terrain, lack of resources, and harsh desert conditions. But his passionate father refuses to give up the fight and is asking for help. This week's episode is The Search for Daniel Robinson. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinister Well, this one has been in the media for the last few months, but particularly Megan, one of our listeners, received two of Daniel's flyers from his dad and shared those with us on Twitter and said, hey, is there anything you can do? Uh, Can you retweet it? We retweeted it, but then thought more powerful than a retweet, a whole episode. So sure. there were some other episodes for uh, uh, around this case back in 2021, but a little bit more evidence has come to light. And then also there's a bigger push now for more support for the petition and the GoFundMe. So we figure keep it in the news cycle, keep it at the top of mind uh, and do whatever we can from, you know, we're not in Arizona, so can't go help with the ground searches. But if we can help, you know, signal boost, we, that's what we can do. These are always the most heartbreaking ones. Because there's no closure. The family is in, you know, current distress trying to find their loved one. And just when somebody goes missing, it's always eerie and um, confusing and and spooky. So there's a couple different theories people have as to what may have happened, but nothing concrete has come to light. So, yeah, anybody that knows anything will have a call to action at the end where you can direct any types of of tips you may have yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, we've uh, a lot of stuff about missing um, people have been in the news over the past, oh, I guess six months. And this one kind of, as we'll see um, was potentially overshadowed by some other cases. And we'll discuss why that might be and hopefully um, get it some of the attention that it should have been receiving this whole time. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Daniel Cornelius Robinson was born January 14, 1997, to David Robinson and Melissa Edmonds. As a young boy, Daniel took up several interests, including music, football, and weightlifting. Of his son, David told Rolling Stone, Ever since he was a little boy, he's been a go-getter. Anything that Daniel wants to do, he does it. Daniel was born without his right forearm and hand, but according to his father, this never slowed him down. Some people look at him being born with one hand as a handicap. Daniel taught me and his mother he was nowhere near handicapped. Upon being accepted into the College of Charleston after high school, Daniel began studying geology. He would eventually move to Arizona to pursue a career in this field. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure as a parent you say... This is the dream. Your kid goes to college. They don't let anything hold them back. They graduate. They have a profession that they're passionate about, that they love. They move off to be independent into another state, and they're thriving. Yeah. He seemed, by all accounts, to be uh, a happy kid. He didn't let anything hold him back and pursued a lot of things that some might say 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that. I don't know if you can weightlift or play football. And he was like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because um, I'm fully capable. And geology is a admirable field. You don't hear of many geologists, especially like young people going to school for that. I like it's that. It's a hard science mm-hmm. for sure. And it's it's one that's needed. And if, uh, you know, if they're doing drilling or well, groundwater research and things like that, that like you said, you don't really think oh, I'm going to go be a geologist, but it's a good career, a lucrative career, and something that's a highly specialized field that you just don't go like, well, I'm just going to study like mm-hmm. this generalized thing and see where it takes me. It's like I am very specifically going to go off. And it's like when you're, you know, you're a little kid and you're like, oh, I'm going to be a scientist one day, and you get to grow up and be a and scientist. you're a scientist. And I imagine um, Arizona, places with large swaths of desert land, is a prime spot where a geologist would head to. Mm-hmm. Daniel had been working for Matrix New World Engineering at a job site in Buckeye, Arizona, about 50 miles southwest of Phoenix. A normally solid employee, Daniel's co-worker Kenneth, told police that he became concerned after Daniel had arrived at work around 9 a.m. on June 23, 2021, acting strangely. He said Daniel seemed distant and was staring off with a blank look in his eyes. Additionally, he was talking about things that did not make sense like asking Kenneth if he wanted to go home to Phoenix to rest. Fifteen minutes after the bizarre encounter, Daniel suddenly left. He never returned to the job site. Yeah, in the police interview, Kenneth said that he he kind of looked over at one direction, and when he looked back, when Kenneth looked back, Daniel was walking away towards his Jeep and just sort of waving at him, and Kenneth was like, all right, and waved back. Yeah, it's um, when you're so used to someone just being like, Every day, the same type of personality when they show up and it's just way off. It's disconcerting and concerning yeah. for sure. And like you, you kind of go, maybe they got something going on. Bye. You know, mm-hmm. you can't hold them there yeah. against their will. Ken reported the incident to his supervisor and both men tried to reach Daniel multiple times throughout the day. After several hours, Ken went looking for him in the direction he had seen Daniel drive off. Ken located Daniel's tire tracks in an intersection in the dirt road that led to the job site. The tracks led westbound towards an extremely large desert area, according to police reports. Ken told police he drove down to the area looking for any sign of Daniel, but did not spot him or his Jeep. Yeah, Daniel drove a blue Jeep Renegade that his dad said he was so proud of. He said when he moved to Arizona, he said... David said, we called it a hoopty. He had this old car and it was like he saved up his money and got this this Jeep, which is a, the perfect car to drive if you're a geologist in mm-hmm. Arizona, you know, if you need safety and things like that. But Ken said this, the road diverged east and west. And yeah, the tire tracks very clearly. If there's nobody else out there driving mm-hmm. and you go, you know, shortly thereafter and see tire tracks, it stands to reason it was the person that left. Yeah, it was out. It was the job site was out in the middle of the desert. So it mm-hmm. was quite a trek to get out there and you kind of had to know where you were going, so randos wouldn't just be driving around that part. That same day, David Robinson, an Army veteran, was at his home in Columbia, South Carolina, when he received a startling phone call from his daughter, Devisha. She told her dad that one of Daniel's co-workers had stopped by her apartment in Phoenix to see if she had heard from her brother, according to Rolling Stone. For a close family that stays in contact, that's a disturbing visit. Yeah, he said that... Daniel didn't really go more than, you know, six, seven hours without talking to somebody. Devisha mm-hmm. lived in Phoenix. His other sister lived in California, and then he was from South Carolina, so that's where his parents lived. So his only family was Devisha mm-hmm. in the same in the city. 
Also unable to get in contact with Daniel, David and Davisha became increasingly concerned. This behavior was unlike Daniel, who normally updated his family on his whereabouts. After six unsuccessful hours of trying to reach Daniel, David told Rolling Stone, That's when I got a little, a lot worried. I grabbed anything I could, threw it in my vehicle, and drove to Phoenix. That evening around 7 p.m., David reported Daniel missing. After receiving the report, Buckeye police began conducting a ground search near Daniel's job site. At the same time, Daniel was entered into the National Missing Persons Database. I mean, you're a parent. The second you hear that, that's exactly what you're going to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It would, um, and to be that far away, you know, just the drive there is uh, harrowing, maddening. You're just beside yourself. You want to get, you know, you can't get there fast enough. I think it's to get that call, uh, that and something has happened to your child or the two worst calls a parent can get. Mm -hmm. The next day, police continued their ground search. Daniel's Jeep Renegade had a Uconnect system installed, a connected car platform that's built into all Jeep brand vehicles. Police were able to access the system. However, they were disappointed when no GPS data was available. Police made attempts to ping Daniel's cell phone to determine his location, but this proved unsuccessful. Police in Tempe went to Daniel's apartment to check for him. He was nowhere to be found. With the ground search still underway, police also conducted an aerial search beginning on June 25th. At this point, Daniel had been missing for 48 hours. For the next few days, the Robinson family received no answers and continued searching alongside police and volunteers. Yeah, they initially got the helicopters out and were searching, you know, the radius right outside of where he went missing. It's such a big area, and Mm -hmm. there's... So much wildlife out there, so much mm-hmm. just ground to cover that it's a needle in a haystack. It really is. On July 6th, investigators from the Buckeye Police further searched Daniel's apartment to gather any possible evidence. By this point, Daniel had been missing for nearly two weeks. The ground search near the job site also continued. Just over two weeks after Daniel had gone missing, the Civil Air Patrol conducted aerial searches. The CAP is the official civilian auxiliary of the United States Air Force, manned by volunteers. With the physical searches still underway, police began looking into Daniel's financial records for any possible leads. Nothing unusual was found. However, some potentially alarming behavior did come to light. In addition to working as a geologist, Daniel earned some extra money delivering groceries for Instacart. It was during one of these deliveries that Daniel met a young woman named Caitlin, according to police reports. After delivering some bottles of liquor to Caitlin's house, she invited Daniel in to hang out for a bit with her and her friend. Before Daniel left, the two exchanged numbers. Devisha told police that despite only having known Caitlin for a couple of weeks, Daniel told his sister he was in love with Caitlin. The young woman had recommended he listen to a spiritual podcast by Eckhart Tolle, and according to police reports, Devisha said it, Change the way he looks at life. The podcast showed him how to view things in a world in a positive way and to avoid negative energy. Daniel had also expressed his feelings about Caitlin to his dad. David told police he thought this was strange because his son didn't appear to know anything about the woman. Co-workers also recalled to police hearing Daniel talk about Caitlin. Specifically, he had incoherently lamented that he was interested in her, but that she didn't reciprocate his feelings. 
she was cooperative with police early on and she gave him, you know, all the texts and everything. And she just explained that he came to deliver the Instacart. They, he was cute and nice and they got to talking and they said, come on in. And she said that she was drunk. She said, yeah. my friend and I had been drinking in retrospect. What were we thinking? Inviting a stranger in, but he seemed harmless. We like let him in. We talked for a while. And then I guess amongst the conversation, they got on this philosophical topic and she said, oh, you have to, who amongst us haven't said, oh, yeah. oh my gosh, you got to listen to this podcast. And you yeah. texted him the link. And that was the very first text between them was this link. She sent the link to the podcast. That's it. And he just wrote back, hey. And they, yeah, they had exchanged numbers. They went their separate ways and um, things kind of escalated in an odd way from there. While Daniel had told friends and family he was in love with Caitlin and that the two had hooked up, Caitlin painted a much different picture to police. She told them Daniel was creepy, claiming he would show up at her house uninvited and unannounced. In one text exchange obtained by police, Caitlin told Daniel how she felt. Honestly, you showing up at my house made me extremely uncomfortable. I will not be home today, but I don't see us hanging out anytime soon. Despite Caitlin's obvious disinterest, Daniel texted her the next day. I'm outside of your place. Caitlin replied. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Please stop doing that. I'm not even home. This is not okay. And to be fair, he had said he left a canopy from his Jeep at her house. So that was the first the beginning of their texting. So they, she texts the podcast. He says, hey. Then the next day he goes, hey, by the way, I left a canopy at your house. Do you mind if I come by and get it? And she says, oh, sure. Come by anytime. Then he sent a heart emoji, mm. which was odd. Mm -hmm. And then that's when she he asked her, hey, can I come by? She wasn't home. She was in Flagstaff on a trip. He She sees him on his uh, her security cameras walking up to her door, trying to knock on the door and then leaving because she's not home. And then she says, hey, it's kind of inappropriate. I saw you showing up. If you need your canopy, I can put it out. And then he later says, oh, no, I, I came and got it. Don't worry about it. But can we hang out? Mm -hmm. And continues to like text her. So I don't know if it was he really did leave a canopy or he left it on purpose mm -hmm. to have a reason to text her again. But she definitely characterized these as she was very uncomfortable with the whole situation. And she said she did not give him his, her address. He had said, let me have your address so I can come get the canopy. And she didn't respond. And then he showed up on the security cameras. So she said he either got it from Instacart mm -hmm. or just remembered from having been there. But she said either way, it felt really inappropriate. Yeah. I mean, that's... There's... Sometimes I think all the time, like, man, we just let whoever come bring whatever to our house. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, everybody's just like we all operate under the guise of this is safe. They've been vetted. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think I'm not saying he he wasn't. I, you know, I mean, if he'd already been there, there's a good chance he just remembered how to get to yeah. our house. He didn't need to go in and, and look it up. But, yeah, the heart emoji is a bit forward and um, perhaps because of how the conversation had gone when he first went into the house. He Maybe he was under the impression she liked him in a way that she didn't really, but I think pretty clear, pretty early on she clarified that, like, mm -hmm. I'm not interested in you like that. Yeah, and if it was just a miscommunication, it just needed to get you know, cleared mm -hmm. up. In a later text exchange, when Daniel asked Caitlin if she hated him, the young woman replied, I don't hate you, but please leave me alone. Caitlin told police Daniel then sent her one last bizarre text. The world can get better, but I'll have to take all the time I can or we can, whatever, to name it. I'll either see you again 
or never see you again. The next day, Daniel went missing. Could be an odd coincidence. You would hope that a one-time interaction with a person wouldn't set somebody off in a yeah. Way. I don't. I I don't think Caitlin is involved in this. I no, think... I don't think she's involved. I'm just saying emotionally. I would hope he wouldn't be as so emotionally yeah, invested yeah. with a person oh, for him to do something. Yeah, that, that he you know say, "Oh, I'm going to run away from my life because I'm so sad about this person that you're really not that familiar with." Although saying I'm in love with this person mm-hmm. is. Yeah, strange. Over just the course of a couple weeks, and not really having hung out very much, he was telling coworkers, family, friends that they had hooked up. He was in love with her, but then he also, you know, said she didn't feel the same way, and he was he was bummed about that. Again, coworkers said that when he spoke about her, it was in that kind of incoherent way he did the morning he he went missing. So it seemed mm-hmm. like. There were days where things were okay and he was lucid. And then there were other times where maybe he was kind of um, talking about stuff that didn't make sense and and just really incoherent. It's a little bit odd, Mm -hmm. yeah. Police reports state that multiple friends and family of Daniel recalled how strange he acted in the days leading up to his disappearance. He was described as being off. Daniel had also texted Devisha the day he went missing saying he had an emergency. When his concerned sister tried to reach him, Daniel didn't answer any of her calls or texts. When police asked Devisha if Daniel had ever expressed suicidal tendencies or desire to hurt himself, she said no. However, she did recall a bizarre incident in which Daniel came over to her apartment and sat in silence for 30 minutes. When she would try speaking to her brother, he didn't acknowledge her. After a half hour, Daniel got up and walked out of the apartment. That's a bit of a disturbing incident. That's got to be unnerving where you're just sitting there talking to your brother and it's um, like nobody's home. Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, he's lucid enough to know where she lives. Come over, come inside, Mm -hmm. you find an apartment. It's not, you know, not even just a house going, finding a specific apartment number and walking up there. That, yeah, that has to be disturbing for a family member to sit through that. Mm -hmm. And, And all this is to say, you know, this is just fact, not even factors, but just information that all hopefully somehow would in a compound way help to figure out what happened. Yeah. There was also, um, uh, they, they said that because the cops said, you know, has he ever done something like this before? Just gone off. And she said, well, there was one time he just left and didn't tell anybody that he was going to California to visit our other sister. But other than that, like nobody reported him showing signs of depression or, you know, um, expressing that he, you know, wanted to leave or anything. But they did admit that he was acting very off and there there was just something not right. Even a waitress that he kind of um, waited on him a, a lot of, I think it was Waffle House, said he came in a few days before and he just wasn't right. And so when you have multiple people in mm-hmm. different walks of life all saying kind of the same thing, it starts to paint a picture that, it seemed like he was struggling with something or in distress in the days leading up to his disappearance. And his friend from college came and had visited him and gone back home to New York by the time he went missing. And the police reached out to him and said, hey, you know, how was the visit? And he said, we had a really good visit, except at one point we were together at a bar. And he said, Daniel told the friend, boy, I'm really glad you came to visit because I've been really down recently. Mm. I've been feeling really, you know, depressed. And he said he didn't really say, you know, about anything, but to... 
Kenneth, the coworker, or to Luke, the college friend, or any, he, he hadn't said any suicidal tendencies mm-hmm. or I just want to hurt myself, but maybe a little bit, uh, like you said, in distress or struggling with something and just saying, you know, I've been really down. Hinting at something, the thing, that things weren't right. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, less than a month after his disappearance, on July 19th, 2021, Daniel's blue 2017 Jeep Renegade was found, giving his family a glimmer of hope that they may finally get some answers about what happened. Cattle ranchers had spotted the vehicle on its side. It had rolled down 20 feet into a ravine less than three miles from the job site Daniel was last seen leaving. With the discovery of the Jeep, law enforcement could also download computer data from the vehicle's electrical systems. Police also found Daniel's cell phone, wallet, keys, and some clothing inside and around the vehicle. I mean, as a family, you think, jackpot, this is going to solve all, we're going to get all the answers right now. Yeah, I imagine on one hand, you're like, oh, the car's there, he's not. And part of you thinks, well, maybe that's a good sign. He's not, he didn't perish with the the accident, so maybe Mm -hmm. he wandered off somewhere. You're also thinking, well, it's been a month, so Mm -hmm. that's a, a rough terrain to survive in for a month. According to Daniel's father in a GoFundMe update, police gave the worried dad the Jeep just one day after it was found. They had not conducted any forensic testing on the Jeep or the surrounding area. David had to demand that police fingerprint the Jeep before he would accept delivery of it. Police claim in an online case update that they extracted data from Daniel's cell phone. No findings have been made public. According to David, Because of their lack of police work on the scene, I'm forced to do all the forensics of the vehicle, the airbags, the clothing, wallet, boots, safety vest, cell phone, work laptop, personal computer, and red transfer paint found on the vehicle. David set up the GoFundMe in order to fund his search, hire a private investigator, and order testing on the objects. That's very distressing for them to go, come pick it up. And he says, oh, okay, so you've done all the tests on it? No. We, I can't no, imagine the it. frustration. And no parent should have to be the one that is trying to get evidence analyzed of an accident their son was i mean you think isn't that what the police are for that's we here's the car here's what we've been looking for like and you're still at a roadblock and man just the frustration i can't even imagine and staring down a huge bill for genetic or forensic testing that you just assume is part of an investigation Mm -hmm. to a missing person David further expressed his frustrations with the investigation of his son's disappearance in an interview with Rolling Stone. I'm very much disappointed with the police. I'm a father out here searching for my son, and they did a total of four searches, and they didn't even come up with a construction cone. David's frustrations mounted as he watched the Gabby Petito case unfold. He told Rolling Stone, All I'm saying is the cops had the resources there quickly. The Buckeye, it's like they're reluctant to use the resources. Petito A young white woman had been reported missing by her family several months after Daniel's disappearance. Her case quickly made national headlines, receiving help and support from both the media and law enforcement. And what I was really thinking about, and and I think, you know, it's the parallels are interesting insofar as the same time frame, but we just covered Sherry Papini, who wasn't even really missing. Yeah. She wasn't even really missing. And how 
quickly. It was on Good Morning America. It was all over the news. It was there. The FBI gets involved. You know, you start, you see, oh, interesting. The blonde super mom mm-hmm. goes missing and the resources are in overdrive. And in this, they're dumping the Jeep on him after a day of not even sniffing around it. And with Papini, there was an immediate positive narrative painted mm-hmm. that, you know, a super mom, she was kidnapped. We, you know, we don't know what happened. She would never do this. And Come to find out, uh, none of that was true. But, you know, they give her the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. before anything. And therefore, you know, I mean, she's an attractive white woman. Her picture's plastered everywhere. And David is just fighting tooth and nail to get, like, some tests run on Mm -hmm. actual evidence that they have. And he's like, it's not, like, there's red paint transfer on the Jeep. He's like, there's nothing red in the desert. Test it's not this. Like what did like, it come from? What kind of car did it come from? Yeah, and it ha- did it come from a car, a truck, uh, some object that flew in the road, whatever. But the fact that it's like nothing to see here, so you can have the yeah, you can have it back. And then you're you know, watching th- this, you know, other family who is heartbroken. Yeah, go through a similar thing, but you think, I wish that um, my son's case was getting this kind of attention. Mm-hmm. David wants it to be known he takes no umbrage with the Petito family. Telling Rolling Stone, they have nothing to do with this. They lost a daughter. They have a young adult, same age group as my son, and they feel the same way. In an interview with Yahoo News, David was more direct about why his son's disappearance did not receive the same media coverage and rescue efforts as Gabby's. People of color, we often go unnoticed. And that is very true. It is true. And uh, we talked about it in... in uh, the different assumptions, the biases that you see, we, you know, in the uh, very older, a much older case that we covered in Anthony Soul, the Cleveland Strangler, mm-hmm. you had some certain complaints. And because the victims were primarily black women, that the and response sex and sex workers, that the response was a lot slower. And so that's not something that I, I don't think it's blown out of proportion. I think the statistics back that up, that there is a disparate treatment in the disappearances or the victimization of when the victim looks different. For sure. Even in, I mean, when the whole Gabby case was going on, her father in interviews uh, said without kind of saying that, all cases should be receiving this type of attention. We are very thankful and and happy that Gabby's case is receiving this. But regardless of who goes missing, everybody should get this type of treatment. And that's the same thing that David said. You know, it shouldn't matter what they look like or where they come from. All efforts should be the same. Well, in this May 5th, which was a few days ago, was the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Day of Remembrance. And, you know, you're... Shining a light on this, and some states like Alaska just uh, appointed its first investigator who's dedicated solely to that. But you do see that there's a huge swath of the population, or it's a small sample of the population as far as a percentage of the population, but they are overwhelmingly more often victimized. And then the bizarre thing is that the resources aren't allocated where there's a larger yeah. uh, percentage of victimization. That's, that's I think where the disconnect is and where the, you know, the phrase missing white woman syndrome and all that is not wrong. When you look at statistically, there's a move ag- uh, away from that towards reallocating resources and towards what Jeff McGrath, which we're about to introduce the, the private investigator said, I get families coming to me now saying, you know, my daughter's been missing for five years and there's been zero movement on this case. Uh, can you help? And the you know they're primarily the victims of color that yeah. are saying we're not seeing any movement. 
Police tried suggesting to David that his son was most likely depressed and just wanted to run away. Knowing his son almost better than anyone, David didn't buy this, telling Rolling Stone, My son is a geologist. He's a scientist. He has a brilliant mind. He's not dumb enough not to take money or anything with him if he wanted to disappear. This was the other thing about the Jeep is there's two cases of water in the back of the Jeep. So if you are going to say, okay, my Jeep's broken down. I'm going to try to walk somewhere to get help. You would take one or two bottles of water with you. You would think, yes. In August of 2021, the family's private investigator, Jeff McGrath, a former police officer who has nearly two decades of experience reconstructing car accidents, told NBC 12 News. Immediately when I saw the vehicle, I noticed that something wasn't right with it. Notably, McGrath was disturbed that the damage didn't match with the terrain and where it was laying. McGrath's team analyzed the car's airbag control module. After the airbags came out, somebody turned that engine over at least 46 more times. That's not normal. We usually see one or two. There was an additional 11 miles on the car since the airbags deployed, so that tells me the car was driven around after it crashed. In his analysis of the Jeep's entertainment system that had been connected to Daniel's phone, McGrath determined that the car was involved in a crash around 1 p.m. on June 23rd, the day Daniel went missing, but four hours after he was last seen. McGrath told NBC12's Josh Sanders, We have a gap in time, and we don't know where he went, what was going on at that point. But looking at photographs, it doesn't match the area. Sometimes those could be a staged event, and this looks like a staged event to me. Using data from the Jeep's black box, McGrath discovered the car had been traveling at 30 miles per hour before the airbags deployed. When McGrath used his own vehicle to test if these speeds were possible in the terrain near the ravine, he concluded they were not according to Rolling Stone. So it's the hypothesis based on this evidence that the crash occurred somewhere else and the Jeep was dumped in the ravine. Yeah, that the crash would have occurred somewhere and then, I guess, arguably driven 11 miles to where this ravine was. And then, I guess, in this theory, um, well, I guess the airbags could have been deployed going 30 miles per hour wherever the crash occurred. And then... Mm -hmm. um, driven the turning over 46 times i don't know about that trying to turn the engine yeah on. yeah uh, the red paint transfer it's like possibly there was a collision whatever happened to daniel happened and then someone drove the car 11 miles and dumped it into the ravine mm-hmm. throughout september the buckeye police conducted targeted ground searches in a 70 square mile area daniel's father told inside edition He believes the search area was not sufficient. Police then outsourced the investigation of the Jeep's technical data to a reconstructionist company called Santan Recon. On October 14th, Santan visited the site, over three months after the Jeep had been removed. Just four days later, Santan issued its report. The city of Buckeye summarized the findings. Santan concurred with the family's investigator that the Jeep was involved in a crash. According to Santan, it was a rollover, and the only crash recorded on the Jeep's internal systems. Data from the system showed that the Jeep's speed increased right before impact. Santan's report concluded that this could indicate an attempt to drive up the other side of the ravine. This makes sense to me, too. Oh, what, that they're saying that it it was trying to get out of the ravine? Yeah. I mean, if I had gotten into an accident and rolled down into a ravine... My first, if I was conscious, my first thing would be to try and probably drive my car back up out of the ravine. 
Mm-hmm. As for the additional 11 miles put on the car after the airbags deployed, Santan did not indicate this meant the car was driven. It concluded that the 11-mile discrepancy between the crash data report and the displayed odometer reading is not considered unusual. Similar discrepancies have been noted by Jeep dealership service departments and other crash reconstructionists. Santan never had physical access to the vehicle when it conducted its report, according to David. He told Yahoo News, When you're there, physically seeing the vehicle, that tells a lot. I'm trying to figure out if this police commission report is just a rebuttal to my investigator or if it's just opinion-based. And Jeff McGrath, who's done this for 20 years, said they their report, see, he said, I, I see reports like this when I'm in a civil case and there's dueling experts and they're trying to debunk what I've written. And he also said there were details missed by this group that he said a first day trainee in a reconstructionist training program should have caught that they didn't catch. So he had a huge issue with this. And he said they didn't physically touch the car. They analyzed some data and said, well, it, it could be this possibly we think, but he said it was almost written as if it was an opposing party in a civil case trying to argue with him. And he said, we're all on the same side, right. man. We're all trying to solve this. Why is it coming across as a rebuttal to what I'm doing? And also, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I'm I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing. He also, though, his theory that we'll get to later doesn't really match up with the evidence he found. So it's mm. kind of confusing, like, that he um, was so adamant about these things when his theory kind of doesn't involve stuff like that. The numerous searchers for Daniel have not turned up many clues as to what happened to the young man. However, discoveries of other lost loved ones have been made along the way. On July 29th, volunteer search crews recovered a human skull while searching for Daniel. The skull was analyzed and later determined it belonged to someone who had been missing for much longer than a few months. On November 6, 2021, more human remains were found during a search. After conducting analysis on these remains police determined they belonged to a different missing person. A woman who learned of the discovery later contacted McGrath to say she believes they are the remains of her husband who had gone missing. And it's sad when they don't find Daniel, but it's at least some more closure for some other families and understanding just by virtue of the more you search, the more you're going to find. And he's taking it as almost a, David is taking it almost as a service to other families too, of like, well, we can't do anything for us. We're still trying, but at least maybe this helps you know, some closure. It's also very alarming and scary that so many people can be missing and dead out there and never mm -hmm. have been found until somebody looking for someone else happens to run across them. And so it makes you think, well, there's probably a lot of people out there that have never been found. Absolutely. David conducted a press conference in late November and continued to express his disappointment with Buckeye police and their lack of response to Daniel's case. Investigator Jeff McGrath sat beside David and explained the extent to which Buckeye PD had failed in the investigation. McGrath claimed, I did uncover a lot of information in that vehicle that poses that there's a lot of suspicious circumstances surrounding this. McGrath was also told by Buckeye police at the time that there was no suspicious circumstances around the case and therefore no investigation. So the police turned all physical evidence over to McGrath. I mean, on the one hand, you get to comb through all the evidence, but on the other hand, that's very disappointing because now it falls on your shoulders. Yeah. I mean, you're the one funding it. You're the one responsible for all of it. And even when they would give, you know, their findings to the police, it seemed that nothing was really done with them. Mm -hmm. And further efforts to help find his son, 
David expressed interest on the GoFundMe page for the FBI to become involved in the case. On November 23, 2021, the FBI was briefed on Daniel's disappearance. While McGrath was pleased the department had finally involved the Bureau in the investigation, he remained frustrated at the police department's ongoing resistance to his work and criticized the lack of urgency by law enforcement. If it was their child, I believe they would step up their investigation. But for this, police look at this as a young black man that they believe just wanted to disappear and join a monastery. It's absurd, absolutely absurd what they believe. Yeah, they kept pushing this monastery thing. And I never read that he had expressed interest in joining a monastery, so I'm not really sure where that came from. And also, that's fine. There are people in monasteries that would be able to say, we had this new guy show up. He matches the description of this right. person. Yeah, His I don't think they is... keep that a, a secret. Yeah, I don't think it's, you have to, you know, don't tell them your identity and you just, you have to leave your whole family and identity behind. I mean, unless it's a cult or something that we don't know right. about. At the same time, the Buckeye Police Department announced its ongoing efforts, which included conducting interviews, reviewing satellite imagery, examining videos and photos, monitoring Daniel's financial activities for any fraud, and following up on tips and leads. So there's a bit of a dueling narrative of David Robinson and Jeff McGrath saying the police aren't doing anything and the police are now maintaining a website that says we're accepting tips. This is ongoing. We're definitely investigating. Is that because around November 2021 is when more October, November is when more national media attention started being spotlit on Daniel's case that then the police go, no, 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 we're still looking. Mm -hmm. We're still looking. Uh, You know, does one cause the other? And is that fine? It's like, no, the ends justify the means. Like we, yeah, we had to put you on blast in the public media and these press conferences, but the result is you now have continued to pursue this. Well, and the issue is that David keeps saying is they drug their feet for so long that it's might be too little too late. That's true, that even if they are now pursuing leads, okay, well, where were you back in Mm -hmm. June? And there was some work done. I mean, he concedes that, that they searched the 70-square-mile area, but he said that's not a big enough area to search. Mm -hmm. In December 2021, David announced another lead to the media. We do have now a second person who saw my son on June 23rd. This person is a federal law enforcement agent who can give us a better understanding of the timeline. The officer was out target practicing with his children, according to David, who continued. The law enforcement official approached. My son was mild-mannered. They had a long conversation with him. It appeared that he was cleaning his car, the car that had been damaged. My son directed him to a location that's better suited for target practicing. So far, no additional breakthroughs have happened in the case as the days tick by. That's eerie, though, that you run into some guy on the road and have a conversation with them and then... So it turns it, out he's missing. What did they say the time what time it was that this happened? I think it was before the crash, but after so it was between nine thirty and one PM. Okay. That would make sense that he Well, if the car had been damaged oh, so he was cleaning his car, it had not yet been damaged. Mm-hmm. On January fourteenth, twenty twenty two, the day that would have been Daniel's twenty fifth birthday, his father told NBC twelve news how hard it was to celebrate without his son. Since he was a little kid, we've wished him a happy birthday, and he's not here to be able to say that to him. He went on to tell the news station that his perspective on the search for his son had evolved in the preceding months. I'm not looking for Daniel out in the desert, walking around, undressed, alive. Right now, it's more of a recovery mission for me as a father. Because we don't know what happened to Daniel out in the desert, I've expanded my searches to cover every city around Phoenix, Goodyear, Buckeye, Mesa. As of February 2022... Daniel's father wrote to supporters that the searches have covered over 19,000 acres of the desert, near where Daniel was last seen. 
Alongside volunteers, David also conducted line searches, covering nearly 6,000 acres of land. David wrote, Those line searches have recovered human remains and hopefully brought some form of closure to other families. He continued, We've also found clues that may have been related to my son's disappearance. In a press conference, David related his conversations with the lifelong cattle rancher who found Daniel's car. The rancher said the lack of cattle droppings and lack of hoof marks around the area meant the car was not there just two days prior. According to the rancher, cattle are curious and would have licked the salt from the Jeep, as well as trampled over the nearby area. Investigator Jeff McGrath also found one of Daniel's socks over three miles away from the crash site, though he received pushback from police on this item's relevance. Yeah, he said he got pretty irritated because the police said, so you found a sock, so what? That's not his. And he said, well, we did testing on it, and it is his, but thanks. That It's it's almost like adversarial. Like he said, it's they. I don't know if they just don't want an outsider poking in the case or what it is, but it seems like each piece of information he tries to come with, he receives this pushback. Mm-hmm. In addition to the desert searches, David told supporters he had conducted searches of the unhoused populations, shelters, hospitals, and mental health facilities. He believes Daniel may have sustained a head injury and could be living at one of these places. And that's, you know, a possibility if you have some sort of uh, severe or significant head injury and you don't know who you are or how to call home. I would hope that a place that had accepted him would have seen all of this and alerted yeah. someone to that by now. I mean, there's flyers, you know, around a lot. So um, if someone was keeping that secret, that would be concerning. True, and if somebody's in the National Missing Persons database and you go, this guy showed up and doesn't know who he is. Yeah. While it remains unclear what happened to Daniel, several theories have come forward based on the evidence at hand. McGrath told Rolling Stone that he suspects Daniel's disappearance may be drug-related. Daniel was an avid marijuana user. McGrath speculates the young man may have smoked some weed laced with PCP, a mind-altering drug that often causes hallucinations. According to Drugs.com, Side effects of PCP can include a blank stare, anxiety, paranoia, slurred speech, and loss of coordination. Feelings of impending doom, as well as a feeling of being invulnerable, have also been reported. Business Insider reports that the drug, also known as angel dust, drives up the user's body temperature, which can lead to users stripping off their clothes in an attempt to cool down. McGrath believes the use of PCP would explain the bizarre conversation Daniel had with his co-worker the morning of his disappearance and why his clothes were found near his Jeep. That's true. If you're hot, I've had an allergic reaction to it, an um, antibiotic, but it's it caused like elevated body temperature, mm-hmm. and I was just like, I can't, I got to take everything off. His, for his part, David Robinson told News Nation Now, anything to do with drugs is something I've never heard about. My son doesn't do drugs. But you also probably don't call your dad and say, hey, dad, yeah. I've been smoking a lot of marijuana imagine. recently. And in the police reports, Davisha, as well as coworkers and friends, said... It was, you know, known that he that he smoked weed. Yeah. Taking into consideration Daniel's relationship with Caitlin, McGrath feels it is also possible that Daniel, feeling depressed from being rejected, drove out to the desert to clear his head. The PI posited Daniel, tired from a long night of gaming the night before, may have fallen asleep at the wheel. McGrath also concedes it's possible Daniel met the wrong person while in the desert, according to Rolling Stone. And I've heard that theory of he drove off because he was needed some alone time, fell asleep, and some somebody hit him. He hit somebody while he was driving, and then there was some sort of altercation or something happened. 
Yeah, I think you could also just hit someone and fall asleep, hit someone and tumble down a ravine. Well, that's what they said. It wasn't there two days before, though. Yeah, I mean, according to that cattle rancher, yeah. David doesn't know exactly what happened to his son, but he told Rolling Stone he doesn't believe Daniel was trying to escape from his life. I believe in my heart. I don't believe my son wanted to be away from his family. My theory is more geared towards somebody did something to my son or somebody knows what happened to my son and is not saying anything. I don't think my son wrecked his vehicle, got out on his own accord, took his clothes off, and just wandered out there in the desert somewhere. You know, I don't believe that. On April 26, 2022, David released a statement that search parties would be temporarily put on hold due to budget constraints. According to his GoFundMe, the desert searches alone cost David around three to $6,000 per week to run because of the specialized equipment that he utilizes to do them properly. The temporary pause is intended to allow for refinement, restructuring, and improved operations. David reiterated that this is only a temporary pause and that he continues to need help. That help includes funding for forensic testing and flyer distributions, which occur weekly in Phoenix. Although the physical search is temporarily paused, David is still pursuing all possible leads. He wrote in a GoFundMe update on April 1, 2022. I am close to answers to what happened to my son. The forensics will bring everything together. David also appeared at CrimeCon in Las Vegas on May 1st, where he shared his story. He told a room full of attendees. In the military, we never leave a battle buddy behind, so as a father, I'm not going to leave my son behind. In addition to continuing his search efforts, David is working to establish the Daniel Robinson Foundation in his son's honor. David has become an activist for other families of missing persons. He told Inside Edition, I run into families all the time that email me and text me and tell me their story, and you just be amazed at the pain that these people go through. David and the rest of Daniel's family just miss their son, brother, and friend. The heartbroken father told Inside Edition, He's a scientist. He worked hard for what he got, and he's out there somewhere, and I need some help in finding him. Presently, David lives in Arizona and continues to search for his son. So far, he has conducted 20 searches since he moved there and told Yahoo News he will continue to do whatever it takes to bring closure to his family. I'm here for you, son. I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep fighting. I know you're out there and you're worth it. And if nobody cares, I care. I'm going to do everything I can to find you. The love of a father and his son. It's inspirational. I mean, it's devastating to watch, mm -hmm. but he is so absolutely resolute in not giving up yeah. and doggedly fighting every day. And he, I mean, he's doing the work, putting in the time out there. Anybody that wants to interview him, he's he's on giving interviews, putting as much information out there as possible because I think he thinks, okay, the more information, mm -hmm. the, the po greater possibility and likelihood that we'll get some type of answers, even if, like he said, it's a recovery mission and yeah. it's no longer a rescue mission. Yeah. yeah, and from what I read in the Rolling Stone article, he's, you know, blowing through his retirement funds. He mm -hmm. He's a vet, you know, and the years that are supposed to be you're, you know, where you just get to sit back and relax and kind of enjoy everything you've done in your life up until now. Sadly, it's now being spent having to fight tooth and nail to get answers about what happened to his kid. Yeah, and I'm sure you think, if the, if I have to do it, I have to do it, oh, and it's yeah. worth it, and I'll do it. But like you said, it shouldn't. he shouldn't have to be yeah. searching like this. But if, if nobody else is, I think you're, if you're a parent, you think, I'm not going to let this go. For sure. We are quickly approaching the one-year anniversary of the day Daniel went missing. His family asks for your assistance in any way possible. Daniel is five foot eight, has black hair and brown eyes, and does not have a right forearm or hand. 
visit pleasehelpfinddaniel.com to donate, sign the petition, print flyers, or to contact Daniel's family if you have skills that could assist in the upcoming searches. Anyone with information on the disappearance of Daniel Robinson is urged to call the Buckeye Police tip line at 623-349-6411. You can also submit an anonymous tip online or through text message on the Buckeye Police's website. Links and more details are available in our show notes. So what do we think? Well, I think right now in a case like this, you're focused on where he is and the why can come later. But also because there is such little information, the why is important to get to the where he is. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's like, we just want to find you. We don't care what you did. We don't care why you did it. We just want to find you. But given there's such scant information, you really have to run down every single minutia, you know, mm-hmm. little bitty piece of evidence because it can give you some bit of clarity. It's hopeful that he's that, you know, David said, I'm close to answers on what happened. It's sad that he's having to fund all the forensic testing himself in order to get those answers. But it sounds like there's a sufficient number of pieces. They're just trying to bring them all together. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard to do that when you don't have the, you know, institutional backing. Maybe now with the FBI a little bit more involved, that will help as well. So what do you think happened? I am, I'm fine. I mean, he clearly smoked marijuana. I think it's bizarre that suddenly it's like, well, he's he's had PCP. He's on PCP. Unless it was accidentally laced or they had some sort of reason to believe that a batch of marijuana in Arizona had been tampered with. I think it would be weird if a, because it said in the police report, like you said, family, friends, his sister, his friend said, oh yeah, he, he drank alcohol and smoked marijuana. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's a bit of a leap as a as a new user of marijuana. I'm not like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to do PCP now for sure. Like, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that that's like the gateway drug myth that I think has been debunked. So I don't know that I necessarily buy that. I, I wonder if his he was in some sort of, you know, like um, Jeff McGrath said, you know, he ran into the wrong person. He rear-ended somebody. Somebody rear-ended him something and or ran down the wrong person or whatever. But I, I think it's interesting the... Placement of the Jeep, the uh, quickness to get it out of the ravine instead of really investigating the area around it. The cattle rancher that said, I grew up on this land. This is my family's land. I'll tell you right now, anything that's out here, the cows come and lick. The cows were just over here a few days ago. This Jeep was not here at that time. I think things like that, it's strange. that, And also, Jeff McGrath pointed to the condition of the Jeep, the physical condition of it, as far as how much dust and things were on it, that if it really was there for four weeks, there would be a greater buildup of dust mm-hmm. of the similar soot or um, silt that's in that area that he said it, it just didn't match the physicality of the Jeep didn't match. And so you see the police's, the police commissioner report saying, we think this and this and this, ha-. they never touched the Jeep though. So mm-hmm. I give way less credence to that report than I do to a person who's dug in it and mm-hmm. been there and gone to the scene and everything. So uh, I think it's sad to see, you know, when the family does have to involve a third party that they're obviously having to pay. And that may alienate law enforcement who are like, all right, who's this cowboy coming in here thinking he's just going to solve everything, telling us we're doing everything wrong. But it's not just Jeff McGrath. There's a second investigator. They work kind of in tandem. And the second investigator is a retired but career homicide detective. So they're both. So it's not like, oh, it's just some random guy off the streets trying to help them solve Mm -hmm. it. I think they're these are two. And Jeff McGrath says, I, and they're very experienced. And Jeff McGrath says in the uh, press conference with David Robinson, he said, I hate 
saying that the police aren't doing their job because I am law enforcement. He said, I hate criticizing law enforcement, but in this case, I have to. He said, I was there. I know how it is. You're pulled in a, a million directions, but when you see a case like this, you have to allocate resources to it, and I'm just not seeing that. And he said, frankly, the reaction I'm getting is weird to me that it is this adversarial trying to fight, trying to debunk. When when Jeff's like, hey, this is the evidence I have, and they're like, well, for the following reasons, that evidence is not real. And yeah, he's it's like, weird that what? he has all this evidence and says that, but then also says... Oh, but I think it was PCP. So he well, I mean, seems in the like same interview. A, he doesn't. He has a lot of different working theories. Yeah, and I think he says, well, he was either rejected and drove out to clear his head. It could have been that he got dosed with PCP. He could have hit the wrong person. And I think that's to me that's better than saying he joined a monastery and we're going to make all the evidence fit that. I think a lot of cases mm-hmm. that we've done, we've seen where you have the answer and you try to make the evidence fit the answer. Versus in this case. You have the evidence and you're having to explore various options because you just don't know. And to be open to it could be this, it could be A, it could be B, it could be C. We have to test as much as we can and find which theory it fits versus this is what we think happened and we're going to make all the evidence fit that. I think his behavior leading up to the disappearance is concerning and um, probably plays into what happened. That is concerning, and I I wonder, and I didn't read, all I read as far as the Caitlin interactions was in the police report, and they had, she had uploaded their text messages to this evidence.com portal for the police to go through, and so I didn't necessarily see the family saying, he would never do that, or that was so weird. All we heard was corroboration of, yeah, he said he was in love with this Mm -hmm. girl that he just met, so I wonder what everybody's take on that is, because that is, like you said, uh, it it goes toward this pattern of kind of strange behavior in the days leading up to well, it. Well, everyone so. said he was acting off and mm-hmm. speaking incoherently and his behavior, maybe not PCP related, but maybe another drug or just mental health episode. The morning he went uh, missing it definitely sounds like something bizarre was going on there where he wasn't himself and perhaps not in his right state of mind. Yeah. And, and especially for when I think, when we see a deviation from the norm of he shows up to work every day. He never calls off. His bosses are like, what? He left in the middle of the day. He never does that. So that all the buildup to that. And then that quick turn, you're right. It points to some type of whether he had a mental health episode and said, I'm going to go drive off into the desert. I think all of that is, that will be something that you would find out later. I think the focus right now is just on where is the what body? evidence do we have? Yeah, where is he and what evidence do we have to find where he yeah. is? Just so so his family can have peace. Although in the meantime, you know, the line searches are, it turns out we need to be doing those in the desert because there's a lot of people out there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the the weird incident with his sister where he just showed up and sat there. It's It's when you take just the little bits of information that you have and you start to piece it together to try and build a, a narrative of maybe this could have been what happened. It seems as if in his admission to his friend that I've been really depressed. I'm glad you came out here and stuff that perhaps he was struggling with some stuff that maybe not everybody knew about. Maybe not everybody knew how serious it really was. Um, you know, I mean, people knew he smoked weed, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't doing other types of drugs, you know, so the behavior that that morning and stuff does seem like either drug induced or mental health related. I think that there was some kind of an accident, be it on his own or with another person. And um, he uh, probably 
either in a, a drug-induced state or a, a injured or having a mental health episode, wandered off from the site, and the desert is a big place. Yeah, and I think that's why his dad's saying, you know, it's a recovery mission, I get it, and mm-hmm. I'm not losing hope, I still want to find oh, him. Oh, for sure, you want to find, th- the, find him and bring him home and give him the proper burial he deserves and everything, and just have closure that you finally can, like, stop looking. Yeah, and have that closure. And also, in the meantime, it's a unexpected, you know, benefit of his being out there that he's now bringing closure to these other families mm-hmm. that you, you, you sort of accidentally become a, uh, not a spokesperson, but like an, an advocate, advocate on behalf, yeah. yeah, an advocate on behalf of these other families. And it's a, uh, a club you don't want to join, right? Of, oh, of for sure. family members of missing loved ones. Well, and, and even so- with um, Gabby Petito's case, they found several. People Others. searching for her, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's the desert is a big place. It seems like it is a place where people go for many reasons. Some of those might be that they want to disappear. They want to, you know, it's also an easy place that if a crime is committed that you could possibly get rid of evidence. So I think that it definitely shows, though, that... um more resources need to be allocated to just searching those those yes. lands for people that are missing. And, uh, I mean, who knows how, how far back some of the, the cases that they have found go. Yeah, and it could be that they said it was a lot longer than a couple months. Yeah. So, And as painful as it is to have a loved one missing for several months, when you go into the years and then the decades mm-hmm. and things like that, and you this search can help families get closure and close cases, then I think it's beneficial to support the search. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if anybody has any information, um, like we said, go to the Buckeye police tip line at 623-349-6411. You can also go to their website to submit anything anonymously and hopefully um, some things come together either by the public or more information and evidence are piecing together that there'll be some answers for this family soon. And the, the police website's not super easy to navigate, but I'll put a direct link in the show notes at the top. I'll put ways to help at the top. Mm-hmm. You can go to sinisterhood.com and click episodes and it'll be right there. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tiers, special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, Wedded Drama, True Crime Headlines, and so much more. We recently did an all-crime version of Am I the Asshole, where it's people in moral conundrums. It was very fascinating. And the patrons in our Getting Into It tier are able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to see us do live on a video live stream. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. 
Also, a quick shout out to the Facebook group. We recently had a gratitude thread started, and it was just so nice oh, to take nice. a moment. And everybody was saying what they were grateful for in this wild world. So it's a very lovely community. It is. And for our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-outs. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, or even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can also share episodes with your friends. There's like three little dots in the top corner. Um, and that's always a fun way to be like, hey, I was just listening to this. And someone mentioned that they go, oh, you know, my mom doesn't really like true crime, but I thought she'd like your show. And I can never remember what other topics. Well, if you go to Sinisterhood.com slash playlist, we have created Spotify playlists where the topics are broken down or the playlists are broken down by topics. So we have best of comedy, conspiracies, cults, cryptid, freaky Friday, headline shows, live shows, serial killers, scammers, swindlers, unsolved mysteries. So we we broke it down by different topics. So if you're like, oh, I, want some, I want something lighter today, mm-hmm. you can listen to the Best of Comedy playlist. Or if you're like, oh, man, I, I, you know, I, I remember they, they did something on this type of case that was in the news. Go to From the Headlines. It's probably on that list. And that's a very easy way to share the show with a friend. There you go. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram and TikTok at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Lisa. Aaron. Meredith McCallion. Married to Murder Podcast. Deidre Griffin. Erica Goines. Cassandra Connolly, Ellie B, Lauren M, Courtney Lubke, Haley Autrand, Furubs, Ayla Parfit, Beth Stanners, Joanne Gilbert, Stephanie Ward, Brianna Page, Karen Rodriguez, Megan, Rory Amaral, Hope Baker, Alexis McLean, Caitlin F, Sarah Ellis, Natalie Vavra, and Katherine Gibson. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We sincerely appreciate all your love and support. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. Sinister.